All right, did y'all see JR's message? No. He's off the call. Everyone, please hang up. I don't think you can add me back. So I guess keep recording and then hang up. Absolutely. Wait, wait, you're back. back. You're back. back. Okay, okay. Never mind. Never mind. You're back. And I I think all we have left is private prisons in this segment. I think that's. Well, wait, wait a second. Did but first, first question. Did anybody stop? Did anybody stop recording? No. No. Awesome. That's that's good. That's the right answer. Um, Second question. Uh, just fill me in, Ken. What were you talking about when I dropped uh, off? I was talking about how the Audrey stuff gets pinned down into a more concrete reality, and that basically makes me happy. And then we made some jokes about T-shirts uh, that we're going to print up for our Patreon subscribers that say uh, "On Goes the Coat" and <laughs> have a picture nice. of Charlie with a martini and get us sued. Perfect. Okay, that's that's all fine. And I think we're about to start um, talking about the Ghostwood Private Prison. Yeah, Jeff just uh, lobbed us okay. a segue. Oh, so, so, so you. You started nope. talking about it? Or? We didn't really start talking about it. I made a, a kind I, of an awkward segue, and then there was dead air because you were gone. I was expecting you to pick it up. Yeah. But yeah, now we're back. Okay, now we're cool. back. All right. We can edit all this bullshit Excellent. out. Excellent. Awesome. That's exactly <laughs> that's, correct. Uh, uh, that, maybe that's, that's the cold, cold open. open. That's the cold <laughs> open. Back. Absolutely. Edit all, yeah, we can edit right. all this right. bullshit out. <laughs> okay. All I really want to do um, on this podcast is like, hawk my line of Charlie t shirts. That's it, really. <laughs> no. <laughs> As soon as the dust settles, you can see a new world in place of where the old one had been. Your skin is crawling with dry, crusted mud, and your naked feet are wet in a pool of blood. And the whistle of the wind in your ears is so loud that your memories have blown up in a mushroom cloud. And as your eyes become there, there appears by the meadow a group like a bear with a long, dark shadow. And you violently shake over what you have seen as you remember the tale of the altered cool. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Wrapped in Podcast. Uh, This is going to be episode 20, where we tackle Twin Peaks, The Final Dossier, the book written by Mark Frost, released after uh, the conclusion of Twin Peaks, The Return. Returning to us uh, is Kyle. How are you doing, Kyle? Uh, I'll be happy to let you know how I'm doing, JR, in a series of manila folders that I'll deliver to you in about a year. Okay, great. And Ken... Are you with us? I'm here. I'm chilling. I got my Christmas ale. I got my whose hands are these. Got my collateral damage. Just going to sit back and spark one up and enjoy. And Jeff joining us from Athens, Georgia. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing great. It's it's. I'm happy to join you. And I've been kind of actively involved in a, a petition uh, for David Lynch to direct a 36-hour reboot of Return of the Jedi that will be in the new Star Wars franchise episodes. Um 13 through i think like 27 that's great uh i just wanted to note for our listeners that um this has been an episode marked with some troubles um i'm gonna set the scene for you it's 1989 and i'm in uh the woods in uh, washington state Uh, i'm i'm with ken 
And uh, Ken is uh, taller than he normally is, and he's got a ponytail for some reason. And I'm feeling kind of Canadian, and we're uh, drinking some beers, celebrating the conclusion of uh, episode 20 of Wrapped in Podcast, despite the fact that uh, it's a long way away from the book that we covered actually having been written. Uh, Jeff is supposed to meet us, and uh, he he is going to come to meet us when Kyle, or I think it was Cooper, or maybe it was Kyle, I'm not sure, but for some reason Kyle was like hiding in the woods, uh, but it's staring and spying on Jeff from behind a bush. Jeff was removing his outer clothing uh, and to, to reveal the uh, cocktail dress that was kind of a little too short. Uh, that he was wa- wearing for reasons that are classified. Um, Kyle emerged from the bush and put his hand out to Jeff and took Jeff on a walk, uh, leaving Ken and I in the lurch just to continue drinking our beer. Uh, Kyle was going to take Jeff back in time, or rather forward in time, so that he could record the first part of this podcast with his microphone on correctly. <laughs> uh, we hoped that that plan was going to work out, but... Uh, uh, Kyle or, or, or Cooper, I, I can't remember, heard this clicking noise, and then Jeff screamed an unearthly scream, and we never saw him again uh, until tonight for some reason. And we lost an um, hour of my vocal. Yeah. Right. That's right. And Ken, Ken was last seen uh, with his mouth smeared with lipstick, looking like a clown, uh, peeling out in his Corvette, and uh, I woke up in the dirt very sore. Um, he was so, doing he was doing Doug Padonuts, which is a joke go. that will that's only right. only be that's understandable a, a, in a timeline that the three or right. four of us Doug, who existed in. Yeah, Doug, right. Doug Padonuts has fallen into the void, uh, and only the four of us will ever understand that joke. And that's uh, where so anyway, that's, everybody. That's where I was working as a cocktail waitress uh, at Doug Padonuts <laughs> in this other timeline for twenty five years. And then I screamed, and here I am tonight. Listen, Jeff, no that's fair. classified. I, I thought we said no cross-dimensional humor. That's just that's, that's not fair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay, so we're going to talk about the final dossier. Um, you know, I, I I really enjoyed reading the book. I I and I think Jeff also. We both uh, read it on Halloween, uh, the evening of October thirty first, which was great. And it's definitely something you can sit down and read in an hour or so. You know, the the book, I don't think, hangs together as well as The Secret History. I think part of that is because now that we've experienced uh, Twin Peaks and the Return and the character of Tamara Preston, as portrayed by Krista Bell, that, that, that character doesn't really correspond very well to the voice that we see in the final dossier, or at least not the character she was to play on the screen. Perhaps she had a, a fascinating inner life. But I think all of us tend to agree that we hear a lot more of Mark Frost's voice in the book than we do from Krista Bell's, you know, fictional perspective. But it's still, I don't, I don't think that it's actually Mark Frost talking. I think that, as we'll talk about later, the mistakes that we see in the book are intentional uh, and reflect uh, Mark Frost's understanding of what Tammy actually knows, for the most part. Um, but we'll go into the details. That's my, you know, very... Uh, thumbnail sketch of the book uh but uh what did you guys think of it before we move on into the folders 
Yeah, I agree with your take on it, JR. I mean, structurally, it didn't hold up for me as well as The Secret History did. It didn't make any sense to me that Gordon would leave Tammy uh, in Twin Peaks for nearly a year to put together all this backstory, which honestly he could have gotten if he and Deputy Hawk had gone to the Double R Diner and, and shared a cup of coffee uh, and reminisced a little bit. And the idea that there's a stack of 18 manila folders sitting on Gordon's desk just seems silly to me. Uh, and I was always at every point acutely conscious that Mark Frost was leading me on an Easter egg hunt. And finally, uh, after reading uh, The Secret History, of course, the final dossier needs more Nixon. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it does seem for me to ping kind of back and forth between this Tammy Preston voice and something that's more like the direct authorial voice of Mark Frost for me. It's it's Mark Frost speaking through Tammy in a way that's more transparent than I would prefer. And my concern, partly because the Tammy in the series is kind of a cipher without much of a voice of her own, but my concern is that the voice Frost has created for Tammy primarily is pretty unappealing. It's um, sarcastic, condescending, uh, judgmental in specific ways that I'll talk about throughout the next hour or so, I'm sure. But it, it comes across more like Albert, really, than Tammy, particularly when it's referring to people as rubes or getting uh, judgmental about sexual politics. There's a slut-shamey element that I, I'm certainly going to talk about a bunch. So, you know, that that is all off-putting for me and takes me out of the experience. But at the same time, I did enjoy reading the book, and I wasn't like scowling throughout like you, JR. I, I tore through it on Halloween night and and had fun, even if parts of it seemed sort of misbegotten. Yeah, and I, I, um, you know, I guess I agree with Kyle about the Easter egg hunt kind of aspect to it, but I, I really mostly enjoyed it and was able to suspend my disbelief and kind of engage with it on its own terms. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, we're talking about the authorial voice here and. You know, I guess we're kind of saying some parts of it sound like Frost, some parts of it sound like Albert, some parts of it sound like, I guess, an approximation of, of Tammy, although she does remain kind of a cipher. But it's interesting that, you know, one of the first sections is this autopsy report written by Albert. And it's I wondered if that was one of the, the first parts that Frost wrote and that voice kind of bled over into the rest of it. You know, yeah. because it, it that's like yeah. sort of the first, you know, real extended, you know, kind of uh excerpt from this we get. And it does seem like it bleeds over, you know, into a lot of the rest of the book. And we get these comments that don't seem like something Tammy would say, but seem very much like something Albert would say. Um so but I was like kind of I think of the panel the least bothered by the character of Tammy Preston and Christabel's performance in particular. So perhaps that had something to do with my, you know, willingness to suspend uh, my disbelief. And I think um, one thing that uh, Twin Peaks Return taught us is that all that fancy uh, equipment that they, you know, the FBI, the Blue Rose Task Force that smuggled into the, the hotel at Buckhorn and their technology failed him. So I, I could I could see him just going back. We're just doing Manila folders, eccentrically <laughs> eccentrically nice. arranged catalog written. That's that's the new Blue Rose editorial uh, policy for for 2017, which is understandable. Nice. 
Yeah, I mean, Kyle mentioned this, uh, and we're, we're going to talk about it a lot, so I might as well uh, start now. The file structure, the idea that this is a stack of files and not a book divided into chapters, falls apart as a conceit really, really fast. Like, these, these thinly disguised chapters with titles like Back in Twin Peaks, it's, it's ridiculous, or Miss Twin Peaks. The idea that, like, Gordon Cole is going through a stack of folders and saying, bring me the one under B for Back in Twin Peaks, in order to find something that has to do with uh, Annie Black. Blackburn or something. It's and, yeah. and characters don't even appear in the files that bear their names. Sometimes they right. appear. I mean, it's you like know. yeah, you you. It'll often be like you know, the, a file will be about a certain character, but that that character's actual story will appear like two folders later. You know, right. and something yeah, completely mislabeled. So. Yeah, maybe An- they're trying Annie to is the most prominent example. Yeah, I kept trying right, to get right. my favorite stuff about Annie Blackburn, which is maybe the best stuff in the whole book. And on uh, reread of the thing, to to find the stuff I really liked, I kept going to the wrong file. So. Right. I just want to say that though that I don't want to sound like we're too down on the book. Oh no, no. Um, I, I, it's a good book. Yeah, and and it's worth getting if you like Twin Peaks and were into the return. Um, I know that. When I first, you know, started diving into the podcast world before we started doing this, um, I remember listening to podcasts that really panned uh, the secret history of Twin Peaks, and I was like mortally offended because I really liked the book. Right. And and that's not us. I I don't think we'd be spending th- this time to talk about the book if we thought it sucked. Um, so I think I speak for everybody on that account. Yes, absolutely. Um, that it, it, yeah. it's 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 not the perfect book. But it's uh, but it's great. It's it's a lot of fun and it's an enjoyable read. And it's definitely written for the fans. Yeah, as you think yes. you said last time, Jr. Uh, in the alternate timeline, we were fans and we were serviced by this book, and it was yes. it did that job really well. So. I'm just going to suggest one other approach to to thinking about the thing as a whole, which is that how does it affect my enjoyment of the series? How does it affect my enjoyment of of Twin Peaks The Return? And that's kind of an odd question because it seems more committed in certain places to going back and exploring untied threads from the end of season two than it does uh, stuff that happens in, in Twin Peaks The Return. And as far as the stuff that is in The Return, it adds to it in some ways. And in other places, I feel like it's sort of does more harm than good. I mean, it undoes some things that I feel like Lynch pretty clearly did. Uh, and there's the continuity areas that we'll, we'll talk about and that you said are, are, are mostly intentional, you think, in the sort of war of authorial voices between Lynch and Frost. But it also thinks through some ideas which were mostly visual or the beginnings of ideas in The Return on TV, which makes for um, interesting and mixed results, I think. Some some of these things kind of fall apart when you think them through more, most prominently for me, the erasing of Laura Palmer entirely, and some of them are really fruitful and interesting. So it's a, it's an interesting companion. Uh, I don't want to give the impression that I'm too negative about it, but uh, and f- as far as how it affected my enjoyment of The Return, I think the answer is less so than I would have expected given its focus on other things. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so we'll start with the first file, which is the Leo Johnson autopsy report. Jeff, you had some initial thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, essentially, as I, we mentioned already, it is an autopsy report from, didn't you say, April 1, 1989, uh, by Albert Rosenfeld. Right. Uh, and there were just a couple of things about this, you know, which document, which is written in this sort of very extreme version of the Albert uh, voice in the show. But there's... Uh, a couple of things I enjoyed, <clears throat> you know, Leo was killed by um, gunshots, which I think uh, JR and Kyle will have more to say about later. 
But one of my favorite little digs in here, and this kind of starts off uh, the, I guess, in large part, sort of deep interest slash obsession by the book and tying up, as Ken already mentioned, some of those loose ends from really like the second half of season two of Twin Peaks. Uh, the last time we saw Leo Johnson, he was, you know, had a, I can't remember what it was. Was it like a bag full of tarantulas that he was like, you know, holding with his teeth or something? And uh, in the, in the autopsy report, it says, you know, the tarantulas don't really kill you stupid. Uh, you know, and this seemed kind of like a dig in some way at sort of the idiocies and absurd plot contrivances of some of the second season uh, writers. You know, that's that was the last that was the, you know, I guess uh, way we we'd left Leo Johnson. And so I like that kind of dig in there. And, you know, Frost gets a couple of he throws some shade later on at a couple of the other uh, more notorious uh, subplots uh, from the end of season two. But here this kind of ridiculous soap opera thing of, you know, Leo trying to keep the tarantulas from falling on him with his teeth is gets a, a dig there. And there were some weird anachronisms uh, in Albert's autopsy that really stood out and kind of bugged me and threw me out of, you know, uh, the idea that this was a document written in 1989. Uh, Albert at the end says trigger warning. Uh, and then he starts talking about craft beer breweries uh, and then even he has this kind of, uh, I, I call it a, a, you know, there were a couple of places in here where I put, you know, your frost is showing. Uh, and then there's sort of this rant about the potential decline of the Twin Peaks logging industry. And even that seemed sort of out of place and, you know, uh, written in hindsight about something. But these seem very, you know, written in the last year or two and threw me out of this otherwise, uh, what I thought a pretty funny document written in, in Albert's voice. Yeah, I, I really didn't like the uh, learn how to code stupid advice that Albert had or, or start a microbrewery or whatever that he had for uh, the, the people of Twin Peaks who've been hit hard by uh, the recession. Uh, but, it, you know, the other thing, too, that I thought was interesting is that in the book or it, the, in the autopsy report, uh, Albert says that Mr. C presumably didn't kill Leo. And and I guess Kyle's got even more thoughts on that. But when I read that the first time, I was like, well, no, maybe he could. Maybe there was some something that Mr. C wanted to put down or erase. And he would have had the time. He just disappeared at the hospital. Nobody really – or actually, he disappeared after being seen with uh, Major Briggs, uh, but was never seen again after that. He very easily could have uh, shot Leo. You know, the, the primary candidate at Wyndham, I mean, it's hard to imagine – that he would because he's he was very busy at the time. Uh, he had stuff to do. I doubt that he was going to come back to the cabin having set up this elaborate yet apparently ineffective uh, predicament that would ultimately resume in Leo's death, except not really because tarantulas don't kill you. Uh, but based on the fact that he was basically shot, you know, FBI style, uh, led me to think that it, it could be Mr. C. I also thought it was, you know, that Leo's Corvette was badly used and bought a few months prior to his death. Uh, you know, we only see his Corvette, I think, in Firewalk with me, and it seemed to be fine. Uh, it didn't seem like it was, you know, falling apart or badly used. Uh, but, you know, that that is what it is. It, it just seemed some weird commentary from from Albert on this point. My retcon explanation for that was that Wyndham Earl, just to, in his spare time, was doing donuts uh, in the Corvette and put some serious mileage on it. <laughs> I see. 
And when Wyndham Earl does a donut, what would you call that? <laughs> that would be called a Dugpa donut. There you go. That's right. <laughs> Someone at the Dugpa donuts just looked up and had a weird feeling right then. <laughs> well, a Corvette and, and just drove by in Odessa, Texas, in the Dugpa donuts, and then oh gosh, a chill went down someone's spine. Yeah, I think it was mine. Wow. Um, yeah, in the uh, in the same alternate timeline in which Jeff said Doug Padonuts originally, I, I questioned your theory, Jr. I was skeptical, but but I, I now think that you're right. Um, I thought that the April first date of the autopsy, frankly, just led me to believe initially that Frost was pulling our collective leg. But I, I think this there's support for the theory that Doppel Cooper killed Leo, and it's right there in the upper right hand corner of the first page of the autopsy report just below the date where we see that Leo Johnson's middle name is Abel, as in the brother of Cain in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, just like this autopsy report is the first file of the final dossier. And in that story, of course, God rejected Cain's sacrifice, so Cain killed Abel in what was the first murder in human history. God then punished Cain by sentencing him to a life of wandering. So, Jr., if you're right that Mr. C, C as in Cooper, but maybe also C as in Cain, killed Leo, that makes Leo Abel Johnson Mr. C's first first murder. Mr. C to spend the next quarter century condemned to a life of wandering before the fireman, the supernatural embodiment of good in the parable of Twin Peaks, rejects him when he attempts to enter the White Lodge. And so given the overtly Christ-like imagery of the fireman sending the golden Laura orb into the world to save humanity, perhaps the murder of, Le- murder of Leo Johnson by Mr. C in what effectively is the first scene of Twin Peaks to occur after the end of season two marks the start of a biblical journey through season three, with part eight marking the breakpoint between the Old and New Testaments, and Richard Cooper's journey with Carrie Page representing the inscrutable prophecy of Revelation that foretells the second coming after the end of the return. God damn. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. I mean, what is the New Testament if not a story about returns? Right. And, and tying up plot threads from the original, I guess. I am the FBI. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, that's that's yeah. great, Kyle. Uh, sh- shall we move on to Shelley Johnson? Yeah. Well, let me uh, let me go back to the anachronism thing for just a minute, Jr. Um, I I'm with you. I think uh, that you noted how how egregious trigger warning is. I think that's that's really egregious. But I also noted the the craft beer thing and our, um, Albert condescendingly telling people to to open up a craft brewery uh, in in Twin Peaks. Uh, I can definitely vouch from my perspective that nobody was talking about craft beer or using the phrase craft beer in 1989. In fact, 1989 represents this pretty specific kind of nadir in the history of beer availability in America. If you're tracking just the number of varieties of beer that were available to Americans to consume, it hits a low point right around the mid 80s. And the reason for that is that, you know, prohibition did its thing. And then after prohibition, a whole bunch of new companies sprung up. 
And they were sort of slowly and steadily consolidated into a few macro breweries and some big successful local operations, your Iron Cities and your Strohs and Blatts and stuff. And that all happened over a course leading up to the, the late 70s, early 80s. And so by the mid 80s, you had maximum consolidation and minimal penetration by anything like what we think of as a new style American craft brewery or even by imports. There really weren't imports in the American scene at that point. There were there was like Lowenbrow and there was maybe Heineken and that would be sort of it. It was very exotic and unusual to get any sort of imported beer. And that's why it became such a big thing for a time before craft brewer brews uh, sprung up. Uh, I remember getting particularly angry in an episode of the Americans in season two or three, because that show is usually pretty careful about its anachronisms. But there's this one episode where the lead character goes into like a sports bar in the DC area on, on a case and or to tail somebody. And he just asks for a beer and the waitress gives him this whole long list of like Bud, Bud Light, Miller, Miller Light, and then Coors and Coors Light and all these different imports and Rolling Rock and blah, blah, blah. And I just remember going through it uh, mentally with a red pen and being like, nope, nope, nope. Like They wouldn't have had that. They didn't have Coors east of the Mississippi by the time this episode took place in the mid 80s. They didn't have any of these imports yet. Uh, It was just terribly anachronistic. And they really ought to have somebody who can just check these things, you know, somebody who can just consult on these shows and tell them when these beers became available, because, uh, because people people definitely botch it. And and Ken doesn't really like his job that much. (laughs) And he likes a new one. (laughs) Which one? Which which of my jobs are we referring to? That's right. That's right. That's right. He, he, he's looking for that job. He wants to be your alcohol I like consultant. several of my jobs. And, and Ken, two, two points on that. Number one, as, as a Southerner and native Georgian, I, of course, am well aware that one of the great movies of all time, Smokey and the Bandit, was about the fact that you could not legally get Coors beer in Georgia in 1977, and that was the whole plot of that movie. And secondly, right. however, I, I do have to add Heineken. Fuck that shit. Paps Blue Ribbon. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's obligatory. I would have been mad if you if you didn't. Sure. But that's the thing. Like, uh, they just would have had to have seen Smokey and the Bandit to have known right. that and to have not made that mistake uh, in the Americans specifically. Uh, I guess I should also add. I suppose this has been Ken's beverage corner. <laughs> right. <laughs> for now. Yeah, for now. Uh, okay. So Sally Shelley Johnson. Not much here that I really observed, other than <clears throat> I appreciate the Tammy calls the most prominent bar in Twin Peaks the Roadhouse, uh, not the Bang Bang Bar, which uh, only seems to be, that seems to be what it's called by every Twin Peaks podcast other than this one. Yeah, and Shelley's father disappearing was was news to me, and it kicks off a theme in the book of uh, disappearing fathers. There's obviously a lot of disappearances generally, including, to my great chagrin, eventually Laura Palmer. But uh, there's a there's certainly a more specific light motif of disappearing fathers throughout the final dossier. You've got Shelley's and Norma's, and eventually Donna's even. Yeah, no, it's Shelley is the shocking uh, product of a dysfunctional marriage marked by an early divorce spousal abuse and alcoholism and a disappearing father like you noted ken that's uh certainly something that we've seen before uh, in twin peaks but it really this is just kind of a preview of the longer story uh that's told in successive folders right and i i just my first you know time through reading the the dossier the final dossier um, i was just struck by how 
unexpected I was to just dive into, you know, Leo Johnson and Shelly Johnson's marriage and kind of background. Like, that was yeah. not what I was expecting. And really, this book, I th- you know, spends kind of the first two-thirds of, you know, it's pretty short, you know, uh, uh, length go really tying up a lot of these dangling plot threads from the end of, of season two. And then kind of the final third really looks at the events of the 18 hours of, of Twin Peaks to return more closely. And that was, I think my, my favorite part was the final third of there were some, some great moments in the, the, the first two thirds kind of tying up the, the loose ends, but it was just very unexpected. Uh, I thought I was expecting it to go straight into, you know, uh, the end of season three, really. Right. And that's not what it did at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm much more interested in, in red than I am in Leo Johnson at this point. Yeah. But I, you know, I think that's, that's right. Me doing. too. And I made this list that we're, we're not going to talk about in any detail, but just for funsies, I made this list of unmentioned characters from the return. Don't, don't make it into the final dossier at all. And it is long. Like there are Cooper personae that don't even make it into the, the final dossier, which is, which is really surprising. And meanwhile, you have all of this like Miss Twin Peaks stuff. <laughs> right. Like people, people really want to know more about Lana budding Millard, which really came out of, out of left field for me. And I, I like to imagine that there were all these conference calls when they were plotting out the return where Frost was trying to get the stuff that he wanted in and Lynch was just like, there's no time. There's no time, Mark. I can't, I can't do the Lynch voice, but uh, you know, people want to hear about the dissolution of the, of the Hayward family. There's no time. There's no time. We've only got 18 hours. We're going to need all these stories about uh, Trip and Trig and whoever in the roadhouse. And we got to put in the sweeping. There's, there's no time to get to any of that. The silent staring. You got to have the silent staring in there. Right, exactly. Mark, Mark, we've got the nine inch nails. We don't have time. Can't do it. <laughs> uh, uh, apparently, there, there's like two or, th- you know, I haven't had time to watch all the special features on the new Blu ray of Twin Peaks Return yet, but apparently, one of the, the little bits that's already uh, become beloved is something where Lynch is going, who the fuck cares about the length, yeah. the time of a yeah. scene? You know, and he's right, just like, yeah. like ranting about that no i'm serious yeah i'm sick of it it's bullshit who the fuck cares how long a fucking scene is i mean i i have not watched the special features yet either um but i did send a gif of that to all of you immediately because that is amazing yeah 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 no that's great who cares about the restaurant critic from you know the double r like it's mark frost is the answer mark frost Mark mark frost very much so so we we move to the totally logical filing convention of <laughs> Horns and Haywards, which sounds like a really trendy restaurant. Oh yeah, know, even though there are the separate files for various Horns and Haywards, we're still going to have a file for Horns and Haywards. Yeah, we find out that you know the occupied Twin Peaks bomb killed Pete Martell, uh, Andrew Packard, and uh, Dell um, Milford. I, and and Kyle, you asked if this is consistent with what we yeah th- this is consistent with with what's in the in the secret history so not really a a, a revelation yeah Kyle we, Kyle you you asked if anyone's disturbed at the idea that Doc abruptly move across the country and abandon his two daughters who who the two daughters who were actually yeah. his 
Um, and and that thought that's kind of troubling. Yeah, it, right? it bothered me a little bit that that this you know I understand all the stuff that happened at the end of season two with Donna and Ben and all that, but that he would then just go to the other side of the continent and and no longer have anything to do with the rest of his family just troubled me, particularly since of course Will Hayward was played by Warren Frost, who is Mark Frost's father, and and he worked his dad into the Father's Day episode of Twin Peaks: The Return and. And then it just kind of left a bad taste in my mouth that this was the end of Doc Hayward, effectively. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I sympathize with that. I I don't view Doc as a as a model dad, uh, but I think I have like a quasi theory or understanding about it. I mean, I think that as really shown consistently throughout seasons one and two, and in Fire Walk with Me, that Doc truly loved his family and his children and very deeply. But, I, you know, I think that in the conclusion of season two, I mean, it, it seemed like that he had a complete psychic break uh, when Ben arrived and split apart his family. Uh, you know, he he's he's a maniac. He's screaming. And, you know, and so I'm wondering if you know, he he ended up having a, an amicable amicable divorce, as far as we can tell, and that that was possibly even encouraged by Ben from behind the scenes. And so, I wondered if Doc and Eileen had some sort of agreement uh, that was no longer viable once Ben stomped into their house and announced that he was Donna's father, uh, and that just sort of threw everything into total chaos for him, and it wasn't something he could sustain. Uh, the psychic break obviously didn't last because you know we find out that Doc ended up taking Ben to the hospital that night uh, and obviously was there in Coop's room at the Great Northern didn't seem to be too disturbed. Uh, the other thing is we have no idea who Harriet or Gersten's biological father is or, or who they may be. The whole thing of him leaving is big and dark and strange, but I think it may speak more to things that are in the darkness than just Doc, you know, being a bad dad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think I kind of read it more along the lines of, of Jr. too, and I think part of the reason for that was just uh, remembering just, you know, in, in a, a show, especially in its first two seasons that played a lot with kind of the tropes of, of a soap opera, right. probably one of the kind of most totally unbelievably kind of melodramatic soap opera-ish, you know, emotionally extreme, mo- you know, this moments in Twin Peaks is that tableau, like in, you know, the Hayward living room, you know, at the, at the end of the, the season two finale. And I could see how that could really, you know, it had a real, like you're tearing me apart, you know, kind of vibe to it, you know, for both the room and, and rebel without a cause, I guess, but it, it just, and, and now the disaster artist, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, it really did have that, that vibe to it. And so I could, I could kind of read it in light of that scene uh, and how over the top it was. And then, you know, I think we also, we talked a lot, you know, uh, during the, uh, our discussions about uh, the return about these themes of kind of interge- intergenerational decay and these kind of destroyed family units. And I kind of saw a continuation of that theme and kind of what happens to both horns and Haywards uh, in this sequence. Fair enough. Maybe there's some logic to the filing <laughs> system. After Perhaps. All. Yeah. Perhaps. I mean, Jeff, that scene in the living room is right out of invitation to love. Right. Yeah. Right. It really is. Yeah, except for the head injury that made me think that, Ben was like absolutely a goner. That's usually the kind of injury that means you're yeah. dead. Well, ex- except in soap operas. Or you bec- yeah. Or you become Dougie Jones and then senator from the state of Alabama. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Okay, so the next chapter, Donna Hayward. 
who is both a Horn and a Hayward and who seemingly could have fit in the previous chapter. But anyway, <laughs> more than anyone else. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. This filing system follows, yeah, Blue Rose, uh, uh, right. you know, logic, non-linear thinking. Uh, on the plus side, though, all of the file numbers do end in 119, which I don't think we've mentioned yet. Yes, so they do. That's cool. That was a really, really nice touch. And I think that why that cracked out mom in Rancho Rosa was so freaked out was she was reading these files and trying to make sense of them. <laughs> one, one, nine. One, one, nine. Horns and Haywards miss Twin Peaks. <laughs> Back in Twin Peaks. Where did we go? Okay, yeah. Uh, so this Donna Hayward Manila folder, uh, my question was just, is this whole chapter on Donna a punitive Ramona Clef based on the dating history and checker past of Laura Flynn Boyle? Because it kind of felt that way at times. And uh, I, st- I still think that, you know, those original cast members who did not want to participate in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me paid the price for it yeah. uh, in the in the long run. Yeah, it, it is a bit of a diss track. Yeah, yeah. And this is the first real example of, uh, of a trend that really hits its apex when we get to the stuff about Norma's mom, about Vivian, who's like the real target of this Tamara Preston voice's ire. And it's this, it's the slut shamey thing that, that really gets to me. I think this Tammy has some solicitude for the extramarital affairs of men, but none at all for women, none at all for even like the dating life of uh, Lara Flynn Boyle, uh, her character, or Lana Budding Milford, who in a terrifically cruel stroke by Frost is linked up at some point with Donald Trump. Like, uh, it just seems like worst case scenario, judgy Albert more than it seems like uh, any version of Tamara Preston that, that I'm familiar with. And the, we'll get to the Vivian stuff, of course, but just the notion to me that the target of the most intense vitriol of anybody in the book or and the person who makes Tamara question existence and her role in the world and why do good people do bad things and why is there such evil in this world isn't, you know, an extra dimensional being or an a- actual right. demon <laughs> like she's encountered through the Blue Rose Task Force. But it's this woman who's like a gold digger who kind of unsuccessfully marries for money and abandons Annie Blackburn and and there's a bad restaurant review in there somewhere. Like that that really is to me your your frost is showing and the attitudes of this particular frost about women aren't great, you know? So that's that's the most off-putting thing to me about the whole book, which I, I did otherwise like, but I, I feel really compelled to, to point that out. I also have a rant about Kathy Ireland. <laughs> I was going to see who's going to bring up Kathy no, no, we, Ireland. We've we, we got to talk <laughs> yes, about Kathy absolutely. Ireland. Uh, Kyle, do you want to talk about Kathy Ireland before I rant? I, I just, uh, well, uh, I just don't think that you can really use the phrase wholesome all-American to encapsulate Laura Flynn Boyle and Kathy Ireland in the same sphere. Frankly, I think they're both carbon-based life forms, and that's (laughs) about the closest parallel you can draw between these two women. Yeah, or they... For for viewers who might be confused, I'll just read the actual sentence, all right? Uh, And this is, you know, Donna had become... A model dropped out of Hunter College in New York, you know, was having a successful modeling career in foreign countries. And then this is the sentence in question. Within the industry, she was considered one of the, quote, fresh faces, unquote, of the 90s. After the somewhat decadent previous decade, a return to a more wholesome all-American look, perhaps best epitomized by Kathy Ireland. That's the sentence we're talking about. A wholesome all-American look best epitomized by Kathy Ireland. I mean – 
My intro- I don't know about Mark Frost. My introduction to Kathy Ireland was via the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. I suspect most of our introductions to her during formative years were, were quite similar, and she was sold to the public as this unapproachable sex goddess. And this notion that there's like a wholesome, all-American component to her image, I can only figure that it comes from either what she's like in real life, or like the wide-eyed naive that she plays in like movies. So she's in this awful, awful Golan Globus-produced B-movie called Alien from L.A., which is also a pretty famous Mystery Science Theater episode in which she plays this wide-eyed naive. And uh, she's in Necessary Roughness as a place kicker on a professional football team, which I think I saw in a theater when it came out because I was very into Quantum Leap uh, and therefore Scott Bakula, I think is the line there. But uh, but anyway, so it, maybe Frost knew her from those movies somehow and not from the swimsuit issue, but I, that, it just doesn't it doesn't work for me. I, maybe she's like that in person. Maybe she's like that in real life. But she she was like the Kate Upton or whatever of her generation. She was She was this swimsuit sex model not uh i mean sexy unapproachable goddess type model not wholesome all-american that's my rant yeah does none of it makes sense none of it makes sense at all it's just a really hyper specific and kind of just bizarre reference you know and and I, i kind of was you know wondering you know would Tammy have used, you know, have been aware of Kathy Ireland in in that way. If she was like, if she's right. probably like around mid thirties and writing this, I mean, would she? I don't know. It just seemed like would eight or nine year old Tammy Preston have looked to Kathy Ireland as a? It's a very bizarre thing that, like, again, that, like there are these little moments where. I, like I said, it was a frost. Your frost is showing, yeah. and also, a what year is this moment? Right, Tammy would have had to have been born in like nineteen ninety or something. Right, and and we saw Maybe. that a little bit in or early eighties. Yeah, yeah, early eighties. Anyway, I mean, it, she certainly wouldn't wouldn't have any any memories of this. But we saw a little bit of that in the Secret History, where she kept comparing uh, the supposed death of of Andrew Packard uh, to the plot of the movie Body Heat. Which uh, again, you know, I'm 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 a middle aged probate lawyer, and this was a movie about Kathleen Turner using uh, a torrid sexual affair and the rule against perpetuities to get William Hurt to take the fall for murdering Richard Crenna. It was a formative moment in my life, but it was a 1981 movie. It would have come out before she was born. There's no way Tammy Preston is familiar with that movie, just like there's no way she's familiar with with Kathy Ireland. So it's very much coming from a guy of Mark Frost's generation, uh, not someone, uh, not a woman her age. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I think uh, Tammy spent her formative years uh, studying, I don't know, like forensic criminal procedure and watching a shit ton of I Love the 80s on VH1. <laughs> right. Uh, or like, or like that, her older male cousins under the bed stash. It's like Body Heat and the Kathy Ireland yeah, swimsuit issue. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was awfully specific, Ken. I, I would have been the cousin's age, not Tammy's age. It doesn't work. Yeah, if, I was going to say, if Donna's life is kind of depressing, Gersten Hayward's life is probably one of the most depressing stories before we get to Annie Blackburn in this this early stretch here. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is really rough. Although, I mean, I feel terrible for her because, first of all, she went to Stanford, which sucks. Jesus. And she went when she was 16. Uh, I can I mean, it's, it's such a depressing. Palo Alto is the worst place on earth. I don't know why anyone would want to go there. My wife went to Cal, so I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on her side on this. 
Uh, but I mean, it's a it, it, it's it'd be a tough place to be. It's very I think depressing. That, that is the the Stanford reference is actually meaningful for two reasons. Number one, the actual name of Stanford University is the Leland Stanford Junior University. So you've got you know young girl from Twin Peaks meets with with a bad end, and she's going to school at a place with the name Leland in it. So uh, the other thing is, of course, the Stanford campus is colloquially known as the farm, which we know is where the village gather on Twin Peaks the return. So I think that's a double reference there to how this is going to end poorly for her. Yeah, that's great. And it reminds me that uh, Stanford is a big plot point in Double Indemnity, which uh, is, is, is about a murder for hire, of course. Um, they call it Leland Stanford, old Leland Stanford, three cheers for Leland Stanford throughout Double Indemnity. And uh, I, I think that there's, it's not a very long line from James M. Cain and, and that film to, uh, to the work of Frost and, and Lynch here. I was just going to say, we did get some interesting kind of information at the end of this chapter, Manila Fold or whatever, uh, that did relate to the return, and that was that both Gersten and Becky apparently did survive uh, the return. Uh, and uh, it's un- and Stephen Burnett, uh, Ken's favorite character, uh, was you know I think still missing as well, which made me wonder what the hell Cyril Pons, played by Mark Frost, told Carl Rod about what he saw in the woods. You know, if he didn't find Stephen's body or, or whatever, so they might have just been discussing. I don't know, um, Carl Rod's whistle or something like that. But the way that the it was edited made you believe that Pons informed Carl Rod that he had seen something awry that really freaked out scene between you know Gersten and uh, Stephen Burnett. Yeah, the, the way that it was edited and the way that it was shot. Like, why why do we have Frost as Cyril Pons, and why do we have that shot of the outside of the trailer? We have Stephen freaking out, and then we have the shot of the trailer as though something very very wrong has gone on. Stephen seems to believe that he's harmed Becky. Gersten seems to believe that Stephen has harmed Becky. The camera seems to believe that Stephen has harmed Becky, and yet all we get is that neither uh, that Becky survived somehow, and that neither Stephen nor Gersten was ever was ever heard from again, or as I think you reminded me, Jr. Ne- heard from since hasn't been heard from since, which brings up the question: since what? Since when was this written? Was it written about the time Cyril Pons is showing up on our screen? Was it written? A lot later, after the erasure of Laura Palmer from the timeline, as other folders would indicate, it's it's very confusing and not very well written. Kyle appeared in the woods again and uh, yes, lifted his <laughs> you know extended his hands out to to Stephen, and something happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really poorly written because Gersten hasn't been seen since, and the the most recent reference to her specifically is just this abstraction of this relationship at the beginning of the paragraph. So there, there's no, nothing to, to dig into as to what she's talking about when she says since I also noted that in it playing up to stereotype of like crazy slut, uh, you've got Gersten uh, having a series of what, what was it? A series of relationships with both men and women, <laughs> right? A reckless and chaotic ref- relationships with a number of men and women. So, yeah, there's a there, that's something a, a detail that Tammy chose to include for sure. Dis- chose to include disapprovingly. 
That's right. And so, uh, moving on, Ben and Audrey. Who Horn. also could be included in the Horns and Haywards because they're both horns. Right. It is. I, I do believe that a more rational filing system would be using subfolders and subcategories, and they are not. Have, but, have you uh, guys okay. not realized yet that like Tammy's like a brilliant modernist like narrator? You know, <laughs> I mean, come on, guys. Hey, look. In the Sound and the Fury, the chapter about Benji is about Benji. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, she's she got went beyond Faulkner here. I mean, come on, that's old hat. She she digested that. She learned something different. I, yeah, I think it's this less is, Faulkner yeah. and more my uh, junior thesis that I wrote in three different colors of ink. Yes. I think that's right. I think that's right. Did you really do yeah, that? Yeah, because I heard that's, that's what Faulkner wanted to do for the Sound and the Fury, but they didn't have the printing technology. So yeah, it was deeply pretentious and misguided of me. Ken, Ken Walzak's House of Leaves. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's charming. Thank man. you. Uh, it's I think it's cool. Yeah. So there's in terms of background for this story of Audrey, it's my understanding from another podcast. Where I think wasn't it the Mr. Robot guy interviewed Mark Frost, which was great, but I can't remember wh- where I heard that. But I think that they talked about um, the original story for Audrey was that she was going to be right. the 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 she she ran the most popular hair salon in town, and she was married to the accountant Charlie, and this storyline had been written, and then Lynch had the notion of the scenes that we actually saw and Frost said, okay, that's great. So here he's with this book in this chapter, it's like Mark Frost is getting his cake and eating it too. That basically that storyline of uh, Audrey being a single mother who kept her child Richard from Ben until she married her accountant, blah, blah, blah. That, that actually happened, but then she checks into some sort of asylum, and that's how we get the scenes that we do see. Do we think she actually went to the roadhouse? Yeah, that she was she was physically projected into the roadhouse from her asylum situation. Or well, it says that it, you're just it, a dream. It's not you know a hundred percent sure that she is in a you know an asylum. You know, I mean, the, the sentence says like she she vanished from public life into either agoraphobic seclusion or one troubling rumor suggests a private care facility. So it's possible she did. I think Charlie. Likes it, you know, take a lady out, show her a night in the town, you know, and uh, I think <laughs> probably Your took her to the, the coat. roadhouse. Yeah, <laughs> off goes the coat, man. I mean, <laughs> yeah, she does appear to wake up out of something from the roadhouse scene, though. So I, I suppose I will, I will rescind my enthusiastic, yeah, because I like thinking of that scene as being somehow more in reality, but it does seem to go directly into a waking up somewhere else. So that's probably the least likely scene to be real. But I will praise this chapter and Frost's approach to it as one of the places where it did sort of increase my enjoyment of the return by pinning something down. Down and making it a little more concrete because those those scenes that whole plot line exists out in this ephemeral dreamland and place where we speculate about whether what's real and what isn't and there is some comfort to learning that the marriage is real charlie is real he was actually um an accountant presumably all of his cool low-tech accounting equipment is real um the coat is probably real right um, i never had any doubt charlie is real i know he was realer you, than anything you else stood in the by whole him. show to me. I, I can't believe uh-huh. you managed to buy a shirt that has the poetry text on it and not one with just like a big face of Charlie. That's really the t-shirt. So far, so far Showtime has not made that t-shirt, and I'm probably going to have to go off 
and independently produce that. Cafepress.com. Uh, for, our, for our Patreon subscribers. <laughs> Off comes the coat yes. with Charlie on it. I mean, that would that would sell at least seven. <laughs> Before we move to Ghostwood and the private prison, I, you know, what I didn't appreciate about this or what I wanted from this chapter that I didn't get and from didn't get from the book is I'd like to really understand more about how Richard Horn was raised to get a sense if there was some aspect of his upbringing that contributed him, contributed to him being, you know, a complete abortion of a human being. Um, or is that just simply his dweller on the threshold DNA uh, that makes him to be so awful? And we, we just don't know. And uh, it, 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 some insight on that account would be interesting for me. And we certainly didn't get it. Yeah, and and I stole that- your point, JR, and you said it better than I did. So you can edit out more of my bullshit earlier. So. <laughs> Yeah, use this take. No, but the fact that we know that his grandmother was instrumental in his upbringing makes that scene where he just brutalizes her all the more terrifying. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, because otherwise it really could go either way. I mean, obviously, Doppelcooper is straight up evil. Bob is with him. You know, he obviously can. Audrey conceived Richard by by uh, you know being the victim of a rape. So I mean, clearly you could say it's it's inborn that he's natural born evil. But on the flip side, you can also see where Charlie, who, with all due respect to Jeff, not the nicest guy in the world, how that probably would not have been the greatest upbringing for him. So environment may have had something to do with it but yeah if if no one else in his life and probably no one else in his life was a a positive contributor to his upbringing surely it would be sylvia and yet she's the one who is uh as much a victim of his brutality as any other member of his family yeah i mean and there's and there's definitely a a, a, a terrible feedback situation going on here in terms of say audrey how crushing would it be for your child to be the son of Mr. C's rape of you. Right. And how difficult would it be that no matter what you tried to do in terms of loving or caring for this child so that the child would feel safe, uh, it, assuming that Audrey knew how to do that, which we don't really know from her own upbringing. Right. Um, you know, it's just it's just an awful mess right. for, for poor Audrey, I think. Which, you know, it, it, I know it's upsetting that she would ever cheat on Charlie, uh, but apparently that was going on and, you know, she had, I think they said she was alcoholic at some point in this chapter, but yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's, it's a really rough situation. Yeah, for sure. All right. So the private prison. Yeah. So it's, it's, this is very much Mark Frost, I think, uh, being a little bit too on the nose, um, as much as I am no fan at all of the private prison industry, putting a private prison industry on Ghostwood Estates. Uh, does seem uh, like a little bit much. Well, and then crediting or blaming the decline of the town so much on the prison at the aptly named Ghostwood. I mean, I'm particularly ripe for the pandering. I'm maybe the most specific target audience you could have for this as somebody who has personally litigated extensively against the Corrections Corporation of America. And yet, I I felt like it kind of cheapens the whole 
post-decline element of the series. I really liked the way that it seemed like these people in Twin Peaks had been particularly victimized by the Great Recession and the jobless recovery, and that it was more tied to its era in time than the original Twin Peaks was, which was sort of backwards looking from the late 80s to kind of the 50s and 60s. Um, I, I really liked that element of the return, and I think that you lose some of that when you get this concrete, specific boogeyman in the form of Ghostwood Private Prison. So that's that's kind of a bummer for me. Yeah, yeah, but I actually th- I th- I think they're both the you know flavors of the same uh, neoliberal shit sandwich uh, on some level. Yeah. They can right. I mean, in terms of the causes of the recession, uh, the, the bailouts, the fact that you know, that the money kept going upward, the outsourcing of government, you know, uh, functions to private industry. Uh, I mean, I see where he's coming from politically, totally uh, on that front. Uh, but it did seem like a little bit much. It's also interesting in in the context of the series, because as we've pointed out, there's so many differences between Twin Peaks, The Return, which seemed much more a Lynch creation, and the final dossier, which is obviously a, a Frost creation. You do have a certain parallel here of local control being given up to some larger corporation. I mean, for all Ben Horn's faults, he was going to build something that he was going to run there in Twin Peaks. But after Audrey's Occupy Twin Peaks movement, he sold it to a private corporation who then turned out to be even worse. And we see that paralleled in The Return with Norma having franchised out the pies to this large corporation that she ultimately divests herself of because she just wants to keep control right here in Twin Peaks with the original and let, you know, Grant Goody from Eight is Enough go make his money with his his cheap crappy pies. Yeah, although I I would say I don't I think that it is everyone's mistake to understate the influence of Mark Frost on the return. Uh, and I don't mean I'm, I, I'm sorry. I, I, think I shouldn't t- say And that. I I know I you I know I know you weren't I know you weren't doing that Kyle. I just want to set yeah. set that up. I think we all have to remind ourselves right. that Mark Frost was the co-writer of the yeah. show. Yeah. Sure. I think it's interesting the ways in which the personal and political and economic meld or mesh in the mind of Audrey Horn versus like Norma Jennings. Like Norma makes all of these decisions because she can't think of her restaurant as anything other than an outgrowth of her personality and her community and her love for her neighbors. She can't make decisions out of a pure economic motive at all. And the uh, show seems to really lionize that in in the end. Uh, and she gets the this really happy ending because of it, and uh, Audrey seems to to proceed uh, from a from a somewhat inverse perspective um, to everyone's detriment. Although I, you know, certainly her intentions were good. Well, the key clearly is to buy secondary insurance to cover your losses. So if you have to pay money out to to Jim Belushi, you've you've got your 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 Lucky Seven Insurance Company remains solvent. You can do the right thing and still make money. Perfect. That's right. All right, so uh, we're going to take a break now because I have to inject my cat, and I think we're going to end this recording since we're right at, right in now.
Thank you.